This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Transformative Principle, episode 89 with Henry Turner. This week, I'm continuing my conversation with Henry Turner, and we talk about his iPad initiative, how he is closing the achievement gap, and some great things that he's doing. I hope you enjoy this episode. I learn so much when I do these, and I hope they're helping you. Thank you for listening to Transformative Principle. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. And let's start talking about some of the cool things that you're doing at your school. You you mentioned to me about your iPad initiative and, and closing the achievement gap, and I'd love to hear about what you're doing in those areas to help with that. Sure. So as I said this earlier, this is going to my fourth year. Um, we're going to our fifth year of our iPad initiative. So uh, going on five years ago, the uh, superintendent at the time and technology director did some researching and partnering with uh, other school district, Burlington, actually, it was at Burlington, Mass., which is our, one of our neighboring schools. They were interested in going into a one-to-one pilot. And so they started to really think about it um, in, in, in Bedford. And so they did a small pilot or a pilot of just a quarter of the students um, in the first year with the hope that it would progress to being 100% of students down the road. So... Um, when I entered going into year two, there were some some teachers who were um, who were using it well. There were a number of teachers who did not feel like they were a part of the process in terms of bringing the initiative on. There, there were some political sort of challenges to this as well because uh, the teachers had there was a little frustration in terms of the con- contractual negotiations that that had occurred when the purchasing of the iPad had gone on. So. There was definitely some resentment and also some frustration in terms of distractibility. And so when I came on, it was sort of a mixed bag of, um, of success. So when I came on that second year of the initiative, we, during part, as part of my entry process, sort of asked a lot of questions about what were some things that we could do that people would buy into and how could we sort of address the distractibility issue and work with students around it, uh, digital citizenship, how could we work with that? Because we were seeing some, uh, some bullying going on with it. So going into year two, they, uh, the school committee had supported all the teachers as well as another class getting the iPad. So when I came on, it was a little more than 50% of our students had them and 100% of our teachers. So we focused that year a lot on professional development with staff. Um, we looked at some other school districts. We um, also really narrowed our focus in terms of what we were going to do with it. So we uh, focused on developing content curriculum, focusing on critical thinking, which is a big focus of our school in terms of higher order thinking skills, uh, using the iPads as a way to check for understanding and, and responding to that, and also as a communication forum for students to communicate with students around the around the world, but also communicate with themselves in their school. So um, we sort of narrowed that focus 
And teachers really started to buy in on that. And going into the midway part of the year two, we uh, saw a lot of a lot of progress. And I think teachers seeing its benefits, students seeing its benefits, and we surveyed folks after that second year, and there was significantly more buy-in to the initiative than um, the year prior. I think it was more comfortability and also sort of providing the focus. Yeah, and it, it also sounds like you alleviated a lot of the concerns that people were having so that they could feel confident going forward with it. Is that the case? Yeah, I think that's right. So we, I think we, there were some folks who did not feel like they were quote unquote technology focused teachers. And so I think they were worried about, there was a lot of sort of uh, buzzwords that were flying around when I entered that first, my first year like, you know, flipping, you know, they're going to have to flip the classroom. And so some of our more traditional teachers were really, you know, kind of overwhelmed with that and suspicious about whether those strategies work. And so I think providing our focus of these are the things that we're going to work on, these are the things we're going to learn about really helped. And then trying to address the distractibility piece, which is still, was still a challenge, but working on teaching strategies that can help kind of manage that and also implement implement more student-centered strategy teaching strategies where um, kids are not going to be distracted I think it's a you know it's, a, it's coming at it from both sides um, and so we, just to fast forward that piece we were really successful going to that second year and so we um, that going to the third year we were able to support the community supported buying devices for all of our students so we are for a pilot group just graduated this past year and uh, you know, now where we are at, the feedback has been has been amazing. Our our kids, as I said in the previous segment, um, you know, kids tell your story the best, and uh, they told us that uh, one that they've learned more about themselves as learners because of the iPads, and secondly that they feel like going into their going into college now, where all of their classmates are going to in college are going to have devices that they feel that they have more skills and being able to manage their distractibility that, you know, when you go into a college classroom, it's amazing how distracted students are, particularly in lecture halls. And they feel like in those situations that they're going to be in a better situation. So um, those are two big things that we thought were powerful, but just in terms of our focus areas, there were students grew in those areas as well. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, distractibility is a huge thing, even for adults. And so what did you do? How, how did you, I don't know if you solved that problem, but how did you reduce the problems of distractibility? What what specifically did you talk about with the teachers and with the students? How did you address it? And obviously the results were good, but what did you specifically do to make them good? So um, some of it was classroom management. Some of it was management um, and support by, by administrators um, in terms of some sort of school-based practices. And some of it was uh, really focusing on teaching strategies that were student-centered. So in terms of the classroom management, um, we really encouraged folks to, again, moving from a traditional classroom setting to more student-centered classroom setting, walking around the classroom, walking up and down. If you have, if the students are in rows, then walk up and down the aisles and see what they're, see what they're doing. And that actually was a, such a huge step in teachers thinking about putting students in groups. And then that led to more student-centered activities that they started to encourage as opposed to just teacher-centered talking. And so those types of sort of small incremental steps 
checking in on students, asking what they're up to, what are they learn, you know, what asking questions led to more individualized type of instruction um, for teachers. So some of them we've kind of encouraged as classroom management strategies, but they kind of led to more student-centered strategies as well. Um, students that are learning strategies. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I think also the trust piece with the administration was important. So we, we've continued to work on that in terms of if a student is habitually um, distracted and not not paying attention or is, uh, you know, sometimes intentionally fooling around to to disrupt, then, you know, we had to address it as a school. So one thing that we've seen is students and sometimes their presentations – a friend of theirs will send them a text message and a text message will pop up in the middle of their presentation just so that they can kind of be disruptive. And you know, I think teachers needed to trust that we as administrators would, would address that type of uh, behavior. And the, some, some of the bullying stuff as well. Like we needed, they needed to trust that we were going to be able to address those types of things. Yeah. How did you address that with students? What types of consequences or discussions did you have and did you have like a like a formally set out like if you do this bullying or this distraction this many times then this is your consequence or what what did that look like Yeah so we're we're bound by the Massachusetts law which is that we have to be we have to inform kids when we're investigating bullying and 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 let and let the parents know and then also let them know if we're going to carry it a consequence and then if it's if it's repetitive bringing in the police. So there's some things that we were, were bound by. Um, but in terms of sort of like the typical, you know, routine sort of actions, like making a, you know, like, like I said, making a teasing someone as they're presenting a project, we would um, ask the teacher to sort of address it. And then if it was something that they felt that they needed to send the student to us, that we would sort of ask the students questions about it. We would, if it was something that we felt like uh, a lot for repair. We, we're a school that kind of has worked a lot on some of the aspects of restorative justice in terms of recognizing what you, your how your actions, uh, what the consequences or what the consequences of your actions are, and trying to repair for those. So sometimes we do that. Sometimes if it's a you know we've seen a friend just doing it to disrupt the teacher, and so really it's the student who is presenting is not necessarily the victim, but the teacher is. We need to sort of have make sure that the student is repairing with the teacher. And in terms of consequences, you know, we there is a range. Sometimes, you know, there is sort of our traditional detention and suspension, if it rises to that. Sometimes it is um, going through uh, more significant components of repair, like apologies or making some sort of educational process to, to learn about, you know, the consequences of, one, of one's actions. We also do an educational piece, too, around within our health classes and then more so in a lot of uh, um, some of our other classes around um, digital citizenship. So we've been uh, working on that as a part of our bullying curriculum. And uh, we're also been working on work around cultural proficiency. And so we're sort of tying all of that in terms of being upstanders, having sort of the bystander students sort of stand up to this type of these type of acts and, and just letting people know it's not cool. And, and that, I think, is where we're going to see a decline in um, this type of behavior is when students stand up to other students and, and tell them to, to stop. Yeah, absolutely. I know there are a lot of different upstander type programs up there. Is there one in particular that you are using to find curriculum from, or are you just kind of making your own thing? So the 
program we've been working a lot with is um, facing history in ourselves, not in my school's curriculum, which is uh, specifically focused on have encouraging students to stand up to 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 hate to anti-Semitic or homophobic or racist or other discriminatory type of comments. So um, we've been using that curriculum of encouraging students to stand up when they hear when they hear comments about others, when they hear students make statements or other adults make statements, and using uh, strategies like asking a curious question, like what do you what did you mean by that, or did you do you think someone would be upset by that? Um, sort of ways to address those issues and, and really they come down to students students standing up. And so working with our, stu- our student leaders and our students to sort of be upstanders. We also have a nice peer leader program. Um, we've expanded, that used to be a program just focused on uh, decision-making around drinking drugs and alcohol. And, and it's certainly an important issue as well. We expanded that program to include 40 students. It used to be 16. It's now 40 students. And um, with the idea of building their vision now is to build a greater sense of community. And so we've used their leadership to help train other students to be, um, to be upstanders. And so they put on a community day at the beginning of the year, and then they do a lot of work through um, public service announcements. We have a TV show every morning. They use uh, actually a great way of using their iPads, create documentaries about students or public service announcements talking about uh, trying to address these kinds of issues. So we're trying to overlap our, all, all of those types of issues and in, in using our student leaders to help sort of help us improve in that, that area. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the overlapping is where the real benefit is going to come. And that's just a, a very neat thing to be able to overlap and to make it so it's not, oh, let's just do this anti-bullying stuff in this one health class. Let's actually make that part of our whole entire life here at school because it affects our whole entire life, you know, and I think that's really important. So I'm, I'm glad to see that you, that you're doing that. That's really exciting. Let's, uh, let me ask you some questions about closing the achievement gap. You, that's something that you've been working a lot on and, while you're doing all these other things, um, what are you doing to close the achievement gap at your school, and and how is that working out? Yeah, so we, one of the my first year as principal, we um, created a data team to investigate where there are learning gaps going on between students. And while um, we're very proud of um, our achievement of our students, we are, over the past uh, four years now we've had um, ninety-eight to one hundred percent students being proficient or advanced on our state exam in the English. And we've been growing by about 1% to 2% every year. We're now around, yeah, around 95% of our students in the math. So we're very proud, considering we have a lot, you know, a number of students who are, we have uh, some students who, through our military dependents and also um, some uh, students who are moving into town. Um, we have some homeless students as well, and uh, they can come in in the middle of the school year, and uh, we've been able to help them to uh, achieve on those on those exams. So we've been pretty proud of our achievement. Um, where we've seen gaps is particularly with income and with race. We have an underrepresentation of African American and Hispanic students, and some of our low income students in our AP high honors and honors level classes. So we've, we've done some work to help address those, address those areas. We have some sort of school-based uh, initiatives 
that are sort of programs to help uh, students take a, a higher level class they've never taken before. So like an AP or higher honors class, we have a program called Excel, which helps kids uh, sort of provide a little more support to them in taking that class. We also encourage teachers to, you know, to identify particular students in those groups who they think can, um, you know, can take an AP or high honors class. And that we've been pretty successful that we've seen um, with that support through Excel and through some other programs. We've seen the grades that the students had in the lower level be the same grade that they're getting in the higher level class. So that's really an attribute to our students and to our teachers into the programs we've been doing. And then internally, we're doing some work around um, our levels. We, we've had sort of, we need to provide a little more clarity in terms of what our levels uh, mean and why we have different levels in our school. And even though we have levels, to make sure that we're not tracking students, um, to allow for students to um, grow and then to take on a new challenge and to ensure that all of our levels are allow students that if they choose to go to college, they can go and that we have high expectations for all of our students to ensure that that, that happens. So um, we've been looking at student work around our, our levels the past year and, and, this year and identifying some common, common expectations we have for students in those our levels. And then this year we're going to be trying to identify clear learning expectations for students um, in all of our curricular areas uh, at each at each level. So that's that's pretty awesome. What have you done to encourage those underrepresented students to take the higher level courses specifically? Go a little bit deeper on that. Sure. So we we believe that it's really about the conversation. You know, I think one thing that we one of the practices that we were using in the past, and I think it's just it's just na- human nature with how we kind of talk to maybe just teenagers or how we talk to kids, but the traditional way maybe, you know, I you're ready to take a AP level class. Do you want to, you want to do it? And I think when we ask teenagers, do you want to do more work? Sometimes they're going <laughs> to look at, <laughs> they're going to look at uh, all of the things that are uh, leading towards no and make the decision to no. you know, they may not have as many friends in those classes. They may not, they may see that it, they're going to have to do a little bit more they're going to take on more rigorous work. Um, they may get a, a lower grade. I think all of those things lead to kids sort of saying no. And what we've been working on with our counseling department as well as with our teachers is making this an opportunity for kids and saying, you know, we believe that you can take this class. We believe that you're going to do well. And while you, it may be a struggle at first, that you're going you're gonna to be a rock star. Um, and not making making it an option, but not making it a um, an option where no can, should be the answer, but where yes is the answer. So we've been we've been more successful with that. We you know we are now going to year three of that component where we're sort of encouraging more kids to take upper level classes, and we're we've grown where we're now. I think one of the data team found that we had um, something like three African American students taking our most rigorous algebra two class over an eight year span in uh, this past year, we had uh, three African-American students taking um, algebra two, I believe it was three students. So we've seen, yeah, so we've seen a little bit more, just having those conversations, we've seen a little bit more progress and we're, we've created a summer program that's affiliated with um, a larger program called the calculus project where the goal is to get uh, African-American and Hispanic students to, um, 
to graduate having taken uh, calculus. So um, we're starting with our seventh graders now. It's, it's going on in our middle school where it's identifying students and encouraging them to take, um, start with Algebra 1 and, or pre-algebra, I guess, in seventh grade and Algebra 1 by, by, fresh, by eighth grade so that they can be on track to take calculus. So, and then looking at more creative ways that if they start progressing in high school to how to get kids to calculus um, by senior year. So we've seen some progress. I think the, like I said, the the conversation in trying to provide the supports for students and trying to find the time as well to help fill in the gaps that sometimes students are demonstrating and trying to fill them in using the summer or after school as ways to to do that. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds pretty awesome. Getting uh, that, that calculus project sounds like a pretty good system and, and would probably be good for, for all students, but especially for those two particular subgroups where uh, that three in eight years to three in one year is definitely a, a vast improvement. And um, that's pretty, pretty awesome. And it's great that you're working with the middle school as well, so that it's not just something you do at the high school, but something that you're doing district wide. And I think that's really powerful too. Yeah, I think it's uh, I was just gonna say, I think it's all it's that's the district support is, I think, the key in doing this, because when it's just high schools looking to close achievement gaps, you really only have four years to sort of make progress when a lot for a lot of kids, it's trying to to get them on the right track earlier on. And so even we, we do an academic competition for African-American Hispanic students. We also do an academic competition for for girls around science in the fall, and then uh, our tenacity challenge, which is is focused on social studies, English, math, and science, and art, um, in the spring, we are moving that, which we find a lot of success, and it's our, our way to sort of connect our our school and our students of color with students of color in other schools around the Boston area. In the Women of Science program, we've been able to connect our female students who are who who are connecting to science with. Uh, schools around the country who are coming to our school to do that, do it. So um, we're actually moving that into the middle school as well to help sort of start the connection to this curriculum earlier so that kids can find the passion before they get to high school. I think that's just, just so important. Yeah. Uh, anything else that I didn't ask about closing the achievement gap that you, uh, that you want to add on to there? No, I think, I think, um, you know, it's similar to the technology uh, sort of transition that it's about, giving students the skills to be prepared for their future and, uh, and believing that our kids can do it. I mean, and allowing our kids to do the great work, I mean, it, it, and allowing our teachers to do the great work as well. I think that's where we've seen the most progress is when we've allowed for more collaboration among our teachers and a lot of our students and our teachers have created more student centered type of learning environments. And so when you allow people to do the work, you're going to see that type of progress. Um, and I think around closing achievement gap, around implementing more technology in the classroom, when you allow people to do the work as a principal, it leads to um, incredible, incredible things. Yeah, absolutely. That was a, a really good summary, but I am going to ask one last question, which is what can people do today, this week, to become a transformative principal like you are? I think that they have to um, be able to, uh, well, I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> I think it takes it takes a while to even consider what transformative means. But I think that you have to know who your, what your school is. And I think it goes back to sort of the question of around 
interviewing is that you need to find the right school, the right fit for yourself. And then you have to build trust with your students, with your staff, and you have to help them find clear direction and then allow them to collaborate and do the work. But I think it, it really it really is based upon trust. Um, they're not People are not going to change unless they trust you. And going into my fourth year, I still think that there is work that I need to do to formulate more trust with with uh, students, staff, and with parents. And uh, what I thought my first year were strategies to sort of foster trust, I think that I need to kind of build upon those, and some of them may be even different. I'm getting out of so the, the introductory stage of, of the principalship in terms of building fostering relationships. Um, and then I think we're going to see progress out of that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What are some of the things specifically that, uh, that you feel you need to do to build more trust? I think I need to get back to listening more. I feel like last year I did a lot of talking and navigating, and I think that I need to, and you know, also the day-to-day job of sometimes crises occurring and feeling like you're being trapped in your um, office or being in the central office. I think I need to get out more and and I need to listen more. And and some of the things that we're taking on that are more controversial that not everyone is in agreement with, I need to do uh, a better job in terms of listening to them and instead of trying to convince them. And I think that's where I was last year was trying to think that if I just kind of articulate the things that I was hearing from staff and trying to make sense of it for the entire staff that everyone would disagree. And, and that, you know, I think the people who were, who are still skeptical that um, didn't work for them. I need to, I need to do a little more listening with them. And so I think that's one of my goals next year is to uh, the initiatives that we're taking on to articulate them with individual people and then listen to what their concerns are and think about how we can get them and in, in in the rest of the staff uh, to sort of be in agreement and to move forward. That sounds awesome. I can tell that you've thought about that and, uh, and that you care about what you're saying. That's, that's great. Appreciate your time today. How can people connect with you and, and learn from you more? So I can be found on uh, Twitter at, at Turner HJ. And I'm also, um, I've just, one of the things I'm trying out this year as a way to kind of think about uh, digital digital um, journaling is I started uh, a blog, which is uh, leading to learn. Um, you can find me on blogger there and I'll, I'll tweet that link out if people are interested. Um, also can find me on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And I will uh, definitely put those links in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton. I know my listeners will also. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Transformative Principle. My name is Jethro Jones and I've been your host tonight or today, or whenever you're listening to it. I really appreciate doing this, and I thank you for listening. I'd love it if you could provide some feedback to me, as I've been asking for for a few weeks now. Click on the show notes here and uh, answer me a question. What is What part of your job is the most challenging right now? I'd really love to hear your answers, and I hope that by sharing what we're doing, I can help you find different ways to improve your life as an administrator and help you become better. So thank you so much for listening and to the Transformative Principle Podcast. And my name is Jethro Jones. You can find me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, 
improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE.